All right, good morning, beloved. Good morning. I want to invite you to take your Bibles out and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. John, chapter 21. As you may have noticed, we are quickly approaching the end of John's Gospel. It will certainly be bittersweet to finish this book as I have absolutely loved our time together in John. What an incredible gospel, yes? Uh, I can honestly say uh, from day one until now, I have loved every single minute of preparation before each sermon. To think I spend nearly 40 hours a week and then have to condense it to one hour. Um, I think back to all of the different times of communion with the Holy Spirit and of prayer and um, and then as we have come together uh, during the week and and opened the Bible together and um, expounded upon the scriptures leaving no stone unturned I told you actually all the way back in August 2020 when we began this gospel I had always wanted to preach a gospel verse by verse all the way through on a Sunday morning. I had um, done the Gospel of Matthew about five years ago in um, our small study group, but I wanted to bless the entire body by preaching here on Sunday mornings, and now, by God's grace, we are officially coming to the end. Uh, one more week, but um, coming to a close, and um, it has been my hope and prayer throughout that you have been as blessed as I have uh, by this gospel and uh, that dearly beloved, your faith has been strengthened in the Lord Jesus Christ. For as the disciples said in John 20, 30 through 31, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But John says, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, continuing to believe, you may have life in his name. That has been John's purpose throughout the entire gospel, um, presenting the, the one true living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and calling on you to believe. Well, today we have another tremendous text to look at today as the Lord Jesus restores the Apostle Peter. Uh, this morning in verses 15 through 19. So what I want to do this morning is to read the text with you and, and then we can see how these verses apply today. So let's read John 21, 15 through 19. This is the word of the true and living God. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him, the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Here we have an incredible object lesson of restoration, forgiveness, and reinstatement. A passage that reveals the amazing grace of God as Christ brings healing to a wounded soul, tortured surely by his regret. And in this portion of John's epilogue, he, he brings closure to the story of Peter, who previously had denied the Lord three times on the night of his arrest and was nowhere to be found during his, resurrect, during his crucifixion. So this epilogue reveals that Peter's denial wasn't the end of the story. If we never had this text, we would have known exactly how it is that he was restored or what happened. Did he just continue on having denied the Lord and, and then went and wrote his epistles to the church? And what did the rest of the apostles think about this one Peter who just denied the Lord? And so it, it sums this whole important story up. It doesn't leave us hanging on what happened to Peter anyways. And by relating his reconciliation with Jesus and the recommissioning by Jesus, we see Christ restoring grace on full display. And um, what a magnificent restoration it is. And this should minister greatly to all of us as well as we all see ourselves in Peter's life. We see ourselves in his proud and boastful spirit that fueled his inflated self-confidence and his worthless self-sufficiency. We see ourselves in his knee-jerk reaction to deny Christ and the shame that surely would have followed him. But the provision of divine grace that he received, restoring him to fellowship and and reinstating him into useful service for the Lord is also a blessing available to every broken believer. We must never forget the depths of the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ and the extent with which he purchased us as he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us with an everlasting love and it is his exceeding joy to restore us, to forgive us, to reinstate us and send us back out 
for service and for his glory. Now, before we jump into the text this morning, I, I want us to look back before we look ahead and remind you of some of the context that will help us better fully understand all that's going on here. Um, if you don't mind, turn your Bibles and look with me at, at Luke 22, just for a moment. Luke chapter 22. Um, remember, we have a number of parallel stories in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that, that feed us some other information that John doesn't. And, and of course, 90% of John's gospel isn't in any of the other gospels. And so when we look at all the gospels, we get a full picture of everything that's going on in each of the stories. And you'll recall Luke chapter 22, the Lord is with his 12 disciples. It's, it's in the upper room. This is the days just before his crucifixion. Um, in fact, it was on the night of the Lord's betrayal. Um, and does anyone remember what the disciples were fighting over? Do you remember who was going to be the greatest? Who was going to be the greatest in God's kingdom? I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. And, and so following their dispute, Jesus turns to Peter in verse 31 who might have been bragging the loudest. I, I'm suspecting possibly so. And in Luke 21, 20, 22-31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. You see, uh, Jesus knew that the, the only thing that would really help Peter to see the, the true condition of his sinful heart and to expose the, the impotence over his fleshly overconfidence was to allow Peter to fall on his own. You know, he often does this to awaken us, does he not? It, James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all as joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Testings, you see, get our attention, don't they? They wake up you who are slumbering. But more importantly, they teach us that when I am weak, then I am strong. That's Christ's strength which is made perfect in our weakness. That we must learn never to trust our own resources and strength. So Jesus prayed that his faith should not fail. And though Peter failed miserably, his faith would not. And now we see the providence of God at work orchestrating in all of these events that have led up to this day 
to accomplish his purpose in Peter's life. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. And beloved, what we see here in John's epilogue at the end of his gospel is the fulfillment of all of this. In John 21, we see Peter returning to Christ. And after restoring Peter, Jesus once again commissions him for the work of the gospel, which therefore enabled him to strengthen the brethren at Pentecost, just as the Lord had prayed. And by God's amazing grace, Satan was unable to overwhelm Peter with his lies. As we read earlier, those fiery darts weren't allowed in. That, that somehow Peter didn't go to the depths where he fully believed that, well, Peter's sin was beyond the reach of God's mercy. That somehow Peter's sin was just too great to be forgiven. That somehow it was too late for Peter ever to serve the Lord again. That somehow his sin was too severe for him to ever be restored and be reinstated into useful service for Christ. And as we witnessed in last week's verses, Peter's heart, oh, Peter's heart was broken over his failure and staying unfaithful to Christ. He was tempted, certainly, to return to his former life, that of a fisherman who fishes only for fish, rather than who Christ had called them to be all those years before, fisher of men. But in Christ's great mercy and compassion for his own, we see the Lord demonstrating his grace once again to help Peter and the other disciples to understand that indeed, apart from me, you can do nothing. And you remember that when this time the disciples had been obedient to the Lord's command to throw their nets on the right side of the boat, their obedience was met with blessing. A miraculous catch of 153 mega, mega fish, large fish, symbolizing the blessing that they will experience in their evangelism as fishers of men. If you cast the net, I, Peter, will draw them in. And was Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, he preached with such power and authority that it says in Acts 2.41, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And on the boat, when Peter and the other disciples' eyes were finally opened and they in fact realized that it was Jesus who was up on the shore, that in fact it was the Lord who was the one who was speaking to him. You will recall Peter dives headfirst into the water. He threw himself into the sea because all he wanted to do was to be where his Lord was. And so he swims ahead of the boat, the text says, and the other disciples came in the boat, dragging nets full of fish. And when they arrived on the shore, our gracious Lord does not scold them, but instead he said to them, come, have breakfast. And he makes them breakfast and he serves them. Where sin increased, 
grace abounded all the more. No longer the suffering servant, but the risen Christ, though now glorified, he's still serving, isn't he? Jesus came and took the bread and the fish and gave it to them, verse 13. A reminder that even the glorified Christ will continue to meet all of their needs. And it was this truth that enabled Paul to write, even though in prison, in Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So now the stage is set for this compassionate yet crushing confrontation as Jesus now restores Peter to ministry. And in the process, we see an example of what it means to be a true disciple. So I've broken our text up this morning into two headings. We're going to spend most of the time in heading number one, that true disciples love Christ more than anything else. True disciples love Christ more than anything else. And we, before we return to the text, I just want to build this out as a foundation for you this morning, that true saving faith and loving Christ are synonymous in the Bible. The primary mark of a true disciple has always been love for God. Love for God. And I want to show you this quickly as both it speaks of in the Old and New Testaments. First in the Old. And we see this, for example, in what is referred to as the Shema. This great Old Testament confession of faith in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. That is the bottom line for your life and for my life, that you love the Lord your God with every inch and with every ounce of your heart. And we see this when Daniel poured out his heart in prayer for his people. He addressed God as, O oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. After the exile of God's people, Nehemiah echoed Daniel's prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5, when he prayed, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then in the New Testament, it becomes even clearer. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, when asked to name the greatest commandment of the law, Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And then in Luke 7, for example, with the sinful woman, Jesus said, Therefore you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. If you have been forgiven of your sins, I can assure you, you 
are one who loves Christ much, not a little. There is no one on planet earth who has been forgiven of their sins who does not love Christ much. And when we come to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, one of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible, it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Everyone who is sovereignly called by God into fellowship with Christ is identified as one who loves God. Then in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, listen to this verse. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed and our Lord come. And accursed means to be damned. If you have no love for the Lord, you have already been condemned. It's John 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in Christ, he is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In Ephesians 6, verse 24, Paul writes, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Grace is for all those who love the Lord. But there is no grace for those who do not love Jesus Christ. It is exclusively for those who love Christ. And the reason we love Christ is because grace has pursued us. And I just want to share a few more verses real quick here. Just so everyone's sure we have a firm foundation of what Jesus is calling Peter into. There's a couple of verses here in the book of James that we have to read. Listen to what James chapter 1 verse 12 says. It says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. If you are a true disciple, you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And one day in heaven, when you are in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will receive the crown of life with the, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Once again, loving Christ is synonymous with being a true disciple. And then one last one from James, James chapter 2, verses 5, says, Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? You know, it's easy to spot those who are chosen. They are the ones who love Christ. They are the ones who love Christ and they will be those rich in faith and God promises to them they will become heirs of his kingdom. And so we see love for Christ is at the very epicenter of what it is to be a true disciple 
of his. And so now Jesus turns to Peter and he's going to hold up a mirror to his heart to see what kind of love Peter has for Christ. So we begin in verse 15. And it says, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? We notice first, Jesus also uses Peter's old name. Simon, son of John. Simon was the old name. He doesn't use the new name that he gave to Peter because Simon was acting like his old self, wasn't he? Simon was going to do what Simon thought was best. He's being old, fleshly Simon. So Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That's quite a question. But these what? We talked about this a little bit last week. I'll give you two possibilities this week. And he could very have both in mind. The first could be, do you love me more than these other disciples? Remember, there was seven of them all together. Presumably, the other six are, are witnessing this. Do you love me more than these other disciples? Because it's just a few days ago that you told me that you did. You were the one who said, they will all deny you, Lord, but I will never deny you. And so you elevated yourself above these other disciples. You, you put yourself up on the pedestal, Peter. You thought so highly of yourself. You said, oh, they'll all fall away. They'll deny you, but I'll never deny you. And we know what happened. It was Peter who denied the Lord three times, and these other disciples know it. And so if Peter is going to have any kind of credibility with these other disciples and, and be a leader to them in, in future ministry, as Acts predicts, the Lord will need to reinstate the apostle Peter. They know Peter was all talk. He was a bunch of hot air. And the second the pan got hot, Peter dropped the pan. He got egg all over his face and he was out of the kitchen. That's Father's Day for Dad. <clears throat> and so, number one, Jesus could be asking Simon Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples here? Because you said that you did. The other possibility is, do you love me more than these fishing boats, these nets, this pile of fish? Quite a sum of money if he was to bring this to the market. That you've gone back to, Peter. In other words, do you love me more than these worldly trappings that are all around you? That you ran back to? These distractions that I've called you out of. And it's not that fa uh, fishing on its own is sinful. But I have called you to be a fisher of men, not a fisher of fish. Do you love me more than these? And with this diagnostic question, Jesus 
is going straight for the jugular. And what he is asking is, Peter, where's your heart at, man? Where's it at? Where's your devotion? And by asking the question, it is obvious that his love is not where it needs to be. Or he would not have denied the Lord and then gone and run off fishing. Think about it. He had just witnessed the risen Christ. That's just happened. Who had defeated sin, defeated death, and the best thing that he thought he could go do with his time is to go straight up north and then go fishing? And then lead the other disciples astray? But would you notice something else? Notice how Jesus does not begin with a harsh rebuke. He could have, but he does not. But rather he comes to Peter in truth with a heart to restore him with a spirit of gentleness. And by the way, we would all do well to use this approach as this is Galatians 6, 1 through 4. If we see someone who is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, you can be spiritual day one, you can be spiritual day uh, year 40. You can be unspiritual day one, you could be unspiritual day 40. If you're all puffed up, and you are not the one to go bring the sin to your brother, have someone else go bring it to them. If you're just trying to put them down, prove your point, yeah, buddy, you're not spiritual today. Take a seat. Because we're supposed to go with the heart to restore. If you want to go to go make sure that you're right and rub their face in it, you're not spiritual. So you who are spiritual, the Bible says, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too also won't be tempted. And he says it because if you aren't right spiritually to handle this or if you yourself are, are not walking according to the spirit, instead of restoring that person by bearing one another's burdens, instead you might be uh, prideful, uh, resentful, and instead of restoring a brother... You're now running around the entire church telling everyone about it behind their back. No, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And though it might be painful, if we truly love our brother and sister, we'll point out their public sin by using the word of God as a scalpel and to get in there and to operate on the patient with a word of truth. It's like a magnifying glass into their heart, the word of God. And when they have turned from their sin to the love of Christ, you have gained a brother or sister. And <clears throat> that's what's happening here. Peter falls into sin. He denies Christ. He's become distracted by things of this world and he returns to what he knows best, fishing, and he left behind his first love. And by the way, you might remember this is the exact reason that Jesus condemned the church in Ephesus. Back in Revelation chapter 2, you'll remember we covered the seven letters to the seven churches some time ago. 
These were seven literal churches in the first century. And if you've read Revelation 2 and 3, you'll know that Christ is here right now. He's in the church. He knows all your secrets. He knows what's going on. And Ephesus is the first church in the letter to the seven churches. And so he writes, first the Lord commends them. He says in Revelation 2, I, two, I, I know your deeds and your toil. He praises them because they, they persisted through persecution, uh, per persecution and, and turmoil. He commends them again. Verse 2, they have exercised discernment. They put to the test those who have called themselves apostles but were not. And you found them to be false. They, so they wouldn't tolerate false teachers. Again, they're commended. Verse 3, and you have perseverance and endured for my name's sake. Again, he commends them. But then Jesus says this in verse 4. He says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. In other words, their religion has become mechanical. Automatic. And we must all be on guard of this. There is such a danger as having a, um, a loveless orthodoxy where we're just kind of going through the motions of our religion, but there's no soul-satisfying joy within us that causes us to rejoice over the fact of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's joyous if you recognize that you've been forgiven. There should be joy. And notice, Jesus didn't say that they had no love for him. Look at all the great things that he commends him for in Ephesus. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure they loved him. This was the church that, that the Apostle John, the Apostle Paul, Timothy, all these great pillars, guys, men of faith, uh, were teachers uh, at the church of Ephesus. This was a, a fantastic church, but, you know, I bet you, well, like for a lot of us, life just got busy. Isn't that what happens to us? We, we just got distracted. Things just piled up and, and, well, like Peter and so many others, Jesus went from being my first love to, I don't know, somewhere down the list. Oh, I, I love him. He's just not my first love. I, I got this important job to, to keep up. I've got this important, all this stuff with my family. I got to deal with my family. They're, they're first in my life. It could have been all the above. Jesus says, you, fought, you forgot, you left your first love. And so I ask you today, beloved, does this describe your love for Christ? Do you remember when Christ first became your first love? And when your heart was overflowing with love for him, when he was that all-consuming passion of yours, the, the object of your heart's desire, do you still have that saming, uh, burning love for Christ? Or have you abandoned your first love? I pray like Paul prayed for the Philippians that your love may abound still more and more in Christ Jesus. So, in verse 15, 
Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than fill in the blank? Fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. Nick, do you love me more than your family, your church? What have you put in front of me, Nick? I want to be first. And my, how this must have just crushed Peter's heart. Jesus chose the Greek word for love that is the highest expression of love. Agapo. And it is, it speaks of a sacrificial love, a supreme love, a selfless love that loves without demanding love in return. Agapeo. It applies a love that is, that is totally committed. And no doubt when Peter hears this, his mind is flooded with all of his failures and his shortcomings and the way that he had betrayed Christ but in his own heart that, yes, I still love Christ. And so he says to him, yes, affirmative. Because all true disciples love Christ. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And here we see Peter choosing a different word for love. This is phileo. In the Greek. And this is the different verb than what Jesus used. Phileo describes a, a loving uh, friendship. It's having a fondness for someone, uh, an affection for somebody. It's used more often than not to describe a, a friendship, someone you like, but not, but not the supreme love. Agapeo. One commentator described it this way. If agapeo is 110%, phileo is 66. <laughs> and perhaps Peter intended this nuanced distinction in his choice of terms here to better reflect a, a lesser kind of love that was really indicative of the way he behaved. Or perhaps he just could not bring himself to agree that he truly possessed the kind of selfless, love that Jesus expressed in this question. So now in his brokenness, fully aware of his, his empty boast of the past, he is only comfortable with expressing his love for Christ through this, this lesser kind of love. And, and he entrusts himself, though, to omniscience of his Lord as he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. In other words, you know the kind of love, that lesser love that I have for you. And it's as if he's saying, Lord, you know all things. You see the imperfect love that I have for you. And I believe in this moment, Jesus, who, who knows all men, for he knew what was in man, John 2.25. He sees right through to Peter's heart. He sees the humility of Peter's heart. And knowing that Peter did indeed love him as much as any sinful human being is capable of loving him, he turns and graciously says to Peter, feed my lambs. Wow. We might have thought Jesus would have said, you're on the B team. Take off the jersey, get at the end of the bench, 
come and see me in two years, and we'll see if we'll have a conversation. But no, Jesus is so gracious. Is he not? He doesn't bench him. He affirms him. In his call to lead and to be a minister and to be the point man of his disciples. And notice what he says. He said to him, feed my lambs. In other words, lead and feed. And, and by the way, just remember, these are my lambs. They're not yours. They're my lambs. I'm just putting you in charge over my lambs, so don't you forget that. And the fact that Jesus calls us lambs here is a metaphor for all believers. Because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to his own way. Sheep and lambs are weak and defenseless animals who can easily be led astray without a shepherd. Just like we are without a shepherd. And so Jesus here amazingly in front of these other disciples recommissions Peter. And this should speak volumes of encouragement to every single one of us today. That you don't have to be perfect in order to be used by God. Amen? Amen. Otherwise, none of us would be used. <laughs> and in no way is this diminishing Peter's denials in any way. And the fact that Peter went right back to fishing. But what this is once again demonstrating is that where sin increased, grace abounded that much more. So Jesus is all set to put Peter back into the starting lineup. But Peter's going to have to come clean with Peter. All right? Because Jesus knows exactly where Peter's at. Peter now needs to know where Peter's at. And so we look now at verse 16. <clears throat> Jesus said to him a second time. Now, the second time is, is, is the same as the first. Uh, Jesus is drilling down even further. It's like Peter is, is in the dentist chair with his mouth wide open. And like any good physician, Jesus wants to, to drill in further in order to expose the, the root of the problem. And so Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And once again, Jesus uses the verb that expresses the highest form of love, the word agapeo. This agape love, this highest form of love. So Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And once more, Peter uses the lesser verb, phileo. And again, I want to underscore that, that Jesus knows exactly what's in Peter's heart. And so the point of the question is not for Jesus to somehow better understand what's going on exactly with Peter. The point of the question is, is for Peter to look inward. It's for Peter to, to look into the mirror, look into his own heart, and to answer the question, is there love for Jesus Christ in my heart? And only Peter can answer the question. Nobody else can answer this question except for Peter. And so Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
And it's if Peter is saying, Lord, you, you know that my love is less than what it should be for you. Lord, you know that I've become distracted. And when the test was put to me, I failed it. You know all things. I am ashamed. I've been distant. I've, I've been defeated. I haven't been abiding in you like I should have. You know that I have not loved you with agape love. And we've got to give it to Peter. At least he's not like the Pharisees who, who look all put together on the outside. But on the inside, they're dead bones walking. Peter's saying, Lord, you know that I haven't loved you as much as you have loved me. And then what happens next can only be described as John chapter 1, grace upon grace. Look at the end of verse 16. He, Jesus, said to him, tend my sheep. This is like a reenactment women of Jonah, is it not? <laughs> This is the God of second chances. This is what Jesus died for, for sinners just like Peter. This is the grace and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he demonstrates here how far his grace is willing to go for Peter, who's been nothing but Mr. Big Talk for the last three weeks. And on the biggest stage of the, of the Super Bowl, he fumbled the ball at the one-yard line. And everybody is looking at Peter. But Jesus says to him, tend my sheep. That the purpose of God must in inevitably go forward. And I have appointed that you will be my preacher on the day of Pentecost. And not even you, Peter, can mess this thing up. Peter is riding the wave of a predestination that God has ordained before the foundation of the world. And there's some really good news in this for all of us. Because here today, there are many of us, including myself, who would say, I'm not exactly where I know I should be. Um, I have let God down more times than I care to count. And every time I look in that mirror... I'm reminded of the sinful man, the sinful, fleshly man. And like Peter, I too have been selfish. I too have been prideful. And too many times I've gone off on my own and done exactly what Nick wants to do. But what we see here, beloved, is there is much grace and much forgiveness from our Lord. Psalm 145, verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Wow. Knowing all of Peter's flaws, Jesus still says to him, Tend my sheep. Beloved, what a picture of un deserved grace it's not up to us and can I say thank God <laughs> I 
Day one, failure. Day two, failure. Day three, failure. And despite Peter's failure, Jesus sees underneath his suffering a contrite heart. He's mourning over his sin. He has a repentant heart. And the Lord sees the longing in Peter's heart that he desperately wants to please the Lord. He sees the desire in Peter's heart. He wants to serve him the rest of his life. Jesus says, tend my sheep. He is recommissioning Peter back into service. And what a great lesson this is for all of us. Oh, dear child of God, never forget this. It is his love for us, not our own love for him, that has forever sealed the bond of grace. 1 John 4, verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. In verse 17, we see that Jesus is going to challenge Peter yet a third time. Bear in mind that Peter denied Christ three times. So Jesus will confront Peter's heart three times, establishing once and for all that Peter loves Christ more than anything else. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? It's um, <clears throat> interesting that this time Jesus used the word Peter used, phileo, for love. It's as if Jesus was saying, Peter, I know you want to love me with an agapeo love, supremely, selfishly, sacrificially, completely, but until the Spirit of God comes in upon you, all you have is phileo love. <laughs> so, do you at least phileo me? Do you love me that much, Peter? And it says, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? We don't know, but by using this word that Peter was grieved, I would imagine that by the third time, Peter's eyes are probably overflowing now with tears. They're streaming down his cheeks. He is probably at this point looking around at his fellow disciples who are witnessing all this, looking around at all of his useless fishing gear now that he thought made him into something. His heart's racing. And with one last ounce of bravado and pride now, drained out of his soul he probably begins to shake his head and peter says to him lord you know everything you know that i love you you know that i love you imperfectly and i hate that you know that i'm ashamed of all of my hollow boasts and my lies and and my foolish dependence upon myself rather than you my, my self-serving Pledges of, of loyalty that disappear like a, the morning mist as soon as the sun rises, rendering me nothing more than a coward. But Lord, oh Lord, you know that I love you. 
Now, before we move on, there's one more thing I want to bring to your attention here, and, and this is for those of us who want to serve the Lord. So this should be for all of us. See in the middle of verse 17 there, Jesus doesn't say to Peter, do you love sheep? Because there's some sheep that are pretty hard to love sometimes. <laughs> he says, do you love me? And if you love me, which gets at the heart of the matter, then you will have a supernatural love given to you to love my sheep. If you're being asked to serve in the nursery, the question is not, do you love babies? The question is, do you love Christ? And if you love Jesus, you're going to love his little lambs. So this is the recommissioning. Do you love me? Do you have a, a deepening affection for me? Is there a, a burning passion in your soul to serve me? Or do you want to go back fishing? Because true disciples love Christ more than anything else. So that's the question that's answered in verses 15 through 17. We'll finish up quickly with our last point. Point number two, true disciples are willing to sacrifice everything for Christ. True disciples are willing to sacrifice everything for Christ. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus now looks all the way to, to the end of Peter's life and underscores the truth that commitment to him means a lot more than just saying to him, I love you. True disciples will be willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to follow Christ. And, and Jesus warned his disciples of this when he very first commissioned his own. This wasn't something he just heaped on at the end. Jesus said in Matthew 10, for example, verse 38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this wasn't only for the 12 disciples. This was for anyone who wanted to be a disciple for Christ. For example, Paul told the church in Romans chapter 14, verse 8, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's. Paul himself knew this very well. He spent just about his entire ministry either being chased by people who wanted to kill him or locked up in prisons as he tried to share the gospel. Life was not easy for Paul. He said in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You kill me, I go to the presence of the Lord. I win. But my, might some of us want to hold on to this life? Paul says, either way, I press on to the prize. So here in verse 18, the Lord looks down the corridor of time all the way to the very end of Peter's life. So in verse 18 of John 21, Jesus says, Truly, truly I say to you, when you were young, 
You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. And what that means is that when you were young, you had the strength to care for yourself, to, to look out for yourself, to put on your own socks in the morning, to put your, shirt, your, your arms through your own shirt. Right now, Dad can't put his arms through his own shirt. He can't pull up his own pants on. So when we get old, these things happen. No one had to take care of you when you were young. Like my mother when she was young. She could walk wherever she wished. She was able to go wherever she desired. But look at the middle of verse 18. But when you are old, and here comes prophecy. When you are old, first of all, you're not going to die young. Peter, you're going to live a while. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Do you see that? Someone's going to come along and they're going to capture you. Peter, someone's going to come along and they're going to overpower you. Peter, someone's going to come along and they're going to imprison you. Someone is going to come and they are going to take your life. How do we know that this is what that means? Well, look at the first part of verse 19. This he had said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. This is a prophecy that says uh, not just that he's going to die, but how he was going to die. This is an allusion to crucifixion. They will stretch out your hands and they will carry you where you do not want to go. His hands will be stretched out and they will be nailed to a cross and he will be crucified just as his Lord was. And if church historians are correct, this was fulfilled sometime in the 60s AD when Peter was arrested in Rome for preaching the gospel. His hands were then stretched out tied and then nailed to the cross it's also reported that when they came to crucify him peter actually said i'm unworthy to die as my lord died and so he has to be crucified upside down it's also said he had to watch his wife be crucified first peter remained strong in the faith by the power of god's spirit until the very end not once again denying his Lord. Before we close today, what can we take away from these last couple of verses? Well, number one, just because you love Christ, it doesn't mean that your life's going to be easy. Uh, just look at the disciples' life. By Acts chapter 4, they're all imprisoned. By Acts chapter 5, they were all flogged. Long before the disciples were martyred, there was a, a steep price to pay for their love for Christ. If you are a bold disciple and, and, and the world sees your faith, somewhere along the way, it's, it's likely going to cost you something. And with the way that this world is heading, uh, it might cost you everything to be a follower of Christ. Certainly, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, you might just expect that. Second, we learn here, Jesus holds your future. And again, this should reassure us. 
nothing surprises God because he has uh, foreordained everything about your future. He already knows the day that you're going to die. Do you know that? People kind of act like that they're in charge of somehow managing whether they live or die. You're not going to live one second more or one second less than what God has already written in his book of life. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, God works all things after the counsel of his will. All things applies to the giving of life, the sustaining of life. He works everything according to the counsel of his will. When we're born, when we die, Acts 17 verse 25 says, He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. (laughs) And I, I wonder what Peter thought here after hearing how he was going to die. How did he serve Christ with that knowledge? Well, for over three decades, knowing that he would die by crucifixion and that this would be still his fate, he still followed Christ. How did he do it? Answer is this. He knew just how much Christ loved him. You see, truly knowing the love of Christ had been for him what sustained his own love for Christ. Oh, beloved, do you know the love of Christ? Romans 8, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, beloved, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then, number three, lastly, we also see in our text is we have the opportunity to glorify God in our death. We can glorify God in the way that we live. We can also glorify God in our own death and as we approach our own ends let me just say having witnessed it it is a glorious opportunity if given to bear witness of your faith in jesus christ just as when we are in trials in our lives 
when you are on your deathbed and you've come to the end and the family has gathered all around you and there's soft whisperings happening and prayers and people going in and out of your room in grief and in sadness <coughs> it is a glorious opportunity for you to, to give honor to God and to have your, your head held high and your voice to be strong and say, I can't wait for me to go in and glory into the immediate presence of my Lord. You can glorify God even in death because death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory, Paul writes. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Well, let's finish here at the end of verse 19 and just notice what he says to Peter. Having gone from Peter when you were young, you could do whatever that you wanted to do to Peter when you're old. You will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you don't want to go. And Jesus now brings us back to the, the immediate moment. And after saying this, he said to him these last two words, follow me. This is the most repeated invitation to come from the lips of Christ. Follow me. To be a true disciple of Jesus, you and I no longer walk in our own direction. We walk in his direction. And Peter now knows that to follow Christ is going to end up in a, a martyr's death for himself. Nevertheless, Jesus still says to him, Peter, will you follow me? And we see from this text to follow Christ means that you're no longer going your own way. You're no longer doing your own thing. You have disregarded your, your own life, and now you are simply following Christ. You have forsaken the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We have burned our bridges behind us. There is no going back. The world is behind me. The cross is before me. We're no longer on the broad path. We're now on the narrow path. We're no longer walking with the many. We are now walking with the few. If you want to go with, be with the many, they're on the broad road. That leads to destruction. Hell. You're on the narrow path with the few that are following Christ. To follow me means to go wherever he leads. It means to do whatever he requires. It means to obey whatever he commands. It means to be conformed to the image of Christ. It means to die to self, to take up your cross. It means to forsake all, and now you are living for Christ. And what Jesus says to Peter, he says to you and I also, so we must also follow Christ. Not man, Christ. It means to love what Jesus loved, to hate what Jesus hated. We now represent Christ on this earth. And let me tell you, the world is watching. And so we don't change what this book says so that the world will like us more. No, we follow Christ and let the cards fall as they may. So let me close with one simple question. Do you love Jesus Christ? That, that's the Lord's question to Peter three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? I pray that you do. Jesus died for sinners just like Peter, just like me just like you, no sin too great, I call on you today to believe in Jesus Christ, whose blood paid our debt. He paid the fine that we could never pay. We can't earn that we don't even deserve. But according to his great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So I call on you today to believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ. If you need prayers this morning or, or have any questions or, or would like to, to meet after, uh, you're welcome to come forward as we stand and sing our last worship to our Lord at the cross.